Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Anything But Typical podcast, but it's not just another edition. This is uh, a really special time for me, especially because yeah, I've had my son on here, which that was really cool. And now I've got a brother from a different mother. He was a like a brother that I was praying for as a child and didn't realize that I could never have an older brother or one that was my same age. <laughs> so that tells you how developmentally challenged I was evidently. But uh, nonetheless, man, I can't wait to dive into the story with Bob Williams. We have seen some highs and we have seen some lows together. And he is one of the most amazing people I know, very talented entrepreneur, very gifted in so many areas, but I'll let Ben dive into mo more of that. But, but Bob, here's the, here's the scenario. You and your Huskies yes. are about ready to go on another long run through Chagrin Falls, Ohio. And he does some long runs with these Huskies and he likes going in the snow. And this is the, the case there's about seven inches of snow on the ground mm -hmm. and nobody wants to be inside or outside because it's cold but you go blitzing by them because you you run at a pretty good pace with your huskies mm -hmm. and somebody's probably going into yours truly and they go who is that crazy person running in the snow with these dogs and somebody says, oh, well, that's Bob Williams. And then they start talking about you, not realizing you could overhear and understand everything they're saying about you. What would you want somebody to say about you? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, Gary, as you know, I don't like to talk about myself much, um, but you're putting me on the spot here. So uh, my first reaction is, I hope it's something positive. I've been in Sprint Falls a long time, my whole life, basically, 60 years yeah. that I've been here. So most people at least recognize me, and I, I hope that's for a good reason. And they may have recognized me from work, from school, when I was a student here, not just my children, from council, from the Board of Zoning Appeals, from activities with the police department and the fire department. So I've been around a long time, but I can tell you, as the population changes, the one thing I can I know for sure is they will say, oh, there's that guy with those two Huskies again, running through town, rain, snow, shine, 10 degrees, 100 degrees, it doesn't matter. I try not to run too far with the dogs when it's 100 degrees outside, but they're high energy and so am I. So we, uh, we're pretty much out almost every day. Yep, that was the scenario. It was it was it was not a fabricated one. It was a real one. <laughs> so, real, real. Minimum twenty five miles a week. Sometimes thirty or forty. <laughs> yeah. So I I got an Australian Shepherd for the exact same reason as as you get in the Huskies, Bob. I I needed an animal to be able to go on those longer runs with me that that could match the energy. So I I understand what you're saying a little bit here. They but, motivate. We motivate each other. For sure. That's right. That's right. I try and go far enough to outlast the Australian Shepherd, but it almost never happens. <laughs> I can outlast one Husky, the older one, but not the younger one. <laughs> so for those that don't know, Bob, he's the chairman, CEO and owner of Paquin Holdings. And when I say that, if we listed his LinkedIn resume, 
that would take up half of the podcast. So instead, we're going to go into the stories about it instead. But I, I want you to first just share with the listeners what the company is and does, and then we can go into your, your history. So uh, Paquin is a post-World War II company started in 1949, uh, had been family owned more or less for the entire uh, history of the company. Uh, for a brief period of time, it was 100% ESOP owned company. Uh, when I acquired it uh, two and a half years ago, I acquired 100% of the stock from the ESOP at the time. Paquin is a, a designer and engineering firm that uh, manufactures and sells and distributes hydraulic components, primarily to the mining industry. Uh, we are XP certified, so we can sell product into explosion uh, sensitive environments. Uh, we are also now a manufacturer of pressure switches uh, and sensors, things that are relatively boring to everyday life, but uh, hydraulics are everywhere. We specialize in uh, niche hydraulics. Like I said, underground mining is a particular strong suit of ours. We sell into oil and gas. We are now selling into food service and other areas as well that are less sensitive uh, environments than what we typically sell in. And we're still a relatively small company. Um, we're uh, approximately 50 employees, two manufacturing plants, one in South Carolina, one here in Northeast Ohio. And uh, most of our employees are long-term employees. In fact, the president of our company, uh, this was his first job. Uh, so Mike has been with us well over 30 years now. And he's younger than I am. So that's uh, something. Well, <laughs> and you also are the chairman, CEO, and owner of Williams Williams Capital Enterprises, which is a family office and private equity firm. And, and that leads into you have a vast experience, uh, amount of experience in private equity, venture capital, investment banking. And so I want to start there. Just what led you to pursuing a career in that in those industries, in the wealth management, private equity type industries? Um, uh, the industry almost found me. Uh, I was always a numbers guy. As a kid, I did well in school, but I had a particular strong suit in math. Anything to have uh, anything having to do with numbers, I just seemed to do well at. I loved it. Uh, even in chemistry, I did well in chemistry. So I had a, a, a mind that was kind of geared that way to begin with. So I went to college. Uh, got my degree in finance, economics, and philosophy, believe it or not. That's a whole nother story that Gary knows everything about. <laughs> yeah, uh, I went on to graduate school, got my degree and my master's degree at Case Western Reserve University. And I had taken a job in New York as an analyst with the uh, idea that I would go on Wall Street, continue to crunch numbers for one of the big firms there. And before I had to show up in New York, I met my wife. And then weeks decided I was not going to New York. I was staying in Cleveland, Ohio and had to find a job. So uh, I started looking, started talking to everybody I know and ended up finding a position as an analyst with a very small venture capital firm, uh, bank owned venture capital firm right here in town. And that's what got me started in the industry. Uh, this was 1985 by 1990. I had seen hundreds, if not thousands of deals. I've been crunching numbers 60 hours a week and decided that uh, sitting in a cubicle doing that was not for me. Uh, I loved the business. I'd met people from California to New York, 
Chicago, everywhere in between in the private equity and venture capital world, and decided on my birthday in 1990 that uh, I would start uh, Williams and Associates, which was the first version of Williams Capital, and go out and sell my services as a number cruncher and an analyst. And it took a few months, but I got my first job from a venture capital firm right here in Cleveland. And off we were. Uh, we were racing away, doing deals and running and gunning the whole way. And we specialized in placing debt and mezzanine uh, financing for venture back deals. So that was the, the origin of it all. And as Gary will tell you, I, over the last pushing 40 years now, I've seen thousands and thousands of companies. I've done close to 3,000 deals in this period of time. Uh, I was transaction oriented all the way up until about 2015. And uh, we'll get to that later, but uh, around 2012, 2013 timeframe, uh, Gary and I had been through a lot together and I decided it was time to do something other than just transactions. Yeah. <laughs> I, right. the problem i'm laughing because i just know too much and and um and we want to get into some of that because as you said at the very beginning you don't like talking about yourself mm -hmm. but you are one of the most fascinating people i know and it's not because you're my friend i've got a lot of friends but like you run deep and uh i've seen tremendous character from you which is why you're on this podcast that's what we're looking for. We're looking for humility for people that are, are willing to share the behind the scenes reels because that can help other people that are listening to this thing. And, you know, where they go, well, I don't have that kind of pedigree. I don't know this or that, but boy, I could relate to that. <laughs> you know, what, what they just talked about, what they went through. So um, you also didn't say that you're a collegiate swimmer at Furman. Um, mm -hmm. So very accomplished in that regards too. But you had an experience in Africa. That yeah. I think we would be remiss if we didn't have you take us through a little bit of that story because it's like mind blowing. So talk us through a little bit of that story and then some lessons learned from that story. Well, it, uh, it was very serendipitous, I guess, that uh, led me there in the first place. Uh, a little background on that. Uh, between 1990 and 1993, Williams and Associates was just a job shop. Uh, I and the guys that I was working with were doing deals as the phone rang uh, between the, all the private equity and rich capital people we knew. And had done many, many deals. We'd placed more than a billion dollars in debt in, uh, in just under three years for all of these deals. Like I said, ranging from Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, Atlanta. I mean, you name it, we were there. Uh, we just had a knack for it uh, because the venture capital-backed deals usually would think about uh, the debt in the mezzanine if ne mezzanine was necessary after the deal had already been struck. So what we did is we compressed timeframes for them. We got the notice of Coopers and Librand, and in a very short period of time, we got an offer for Coopers to buy us out and to buy our deal flow, which they did. It closed in 1993, and uh, the first and really current existing version of Williams Capital was born 
uh, that year. But as a consequence of that deal, I ended up meeting some Coopers and Librand uh, guys from London who were involved in uh, the funding of the, com the commercialization of the fishing industry in West Africa. And they were working on the math. How do we make this work if the European Union provides uh, the funding to pay for the construction of the ships and the docks? How do we get paid back? Because really all they have to offer is uh, the, the fish, the stock that they would be catching. And the problem they couldn't figure out was shrinkage. Well, I had a knack for writing algorithms. So they called me and asked me if I could write the algorithm that could balance the equation in this whole deal. So off I went to London and they said, man, this is great. Thanks for helping us out with this. It was supposed to be a week or two weeks. They said, can you go to Senegal and meet with uh, uh, the head of the, the health ministry there, uh, the agriculture ministry? And I said, no, I have no desire whatsoever to go to Africa. <laughs> so anyway, they eventually convinced me to go there and I ended up visiting Senegal, um, Guinea Conakry, which I wish I had never gone to because uh, ne'er-do-wells in Guinea Conakry decided that uh, they did not like the government, did not like any Western contacts that they had with the government, and decided to put a target on my back. And the short version of that is I insisted on going off itinerary the morning I was due to go to the prime minister's office. Uh, to go see the the native uh, farms inland and avoid an assassination as a result of that. So the government came and got me. I hunkered down in the hotel for three days. Uh, the U.S. government was kind enough to sneak me out of there in the middle of the night, um, got me back to safety. And after all of that, I still went back to Dakar to, to end up finishing uh, the first phase of that deal. And uh, unfortunately, the first phase of the deal was the only one that got done because the government's there is so unstable. But uh, again, you know, just as a deal guy and a number cruncher, I found myself in uh, a more hazardous situation than I had planned on. <laughs> yeah, I, I think you're the first guest that we've had on here that uh, someone uh, did an assassination attempt on. <laughs> so... Mm. Well, thank God that they were were not successful. I, 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 to this day, Gary, you and I have talked about. It. I have no idea why I was so insistent on uh, going off itinerary. First, I knew you go to the government's office and you wait for hours—six hours, seven hours, eight hours—and I said, "Why should I sit in uh, the government offices for the first five or six hours of the day when I can go see what I really want to see?" while I'm here and convinced my guides and said, okay, we'll go off itinerary. And I was very fortunate. There were a couple of other businessmen that were not as fortunate as me that morning. But uh, like I said, I, I, I am blessed that whatever my insistence was led me to a safer path and a way out of that. Pretty incredible. So, I'm curious about where you go from there, right? That's a, a life-changing experience in itself. You're a few years into having created your own shop. What direction do you go after that experience? 
I well, certainly because of the deal itself, not so much the incident. Um, I became very visible on um, uh, the international stage in terms of uh, the types of things we were capable of doing as Williams Capital. By the way, the new version of Williams Capital was much more a merchant bank than it was uh, a pure deal shop. Uh, we would, I would look most often to uh, get involved with deals that we could invest in, as well as uh, help source all the financing necessary. Uh, which is fairly typical of merchant bankers. So we were doing it for our account as well as for uh, the uh, the big shops that were engaging with us in the first place. Uh, I found it uh, kind of extraordinary that that's one of my huskies. Yeah. <laughs> Can't hear. Oh, okay, good. I'm glad that's getting filtered. That's uh, that's Evie. She's a Siberian husky. And she is very energetic. Don't be surprised if she shows up here in the frame. But something that's interesting about the 1990s that you'll hear from uh, other people, other professionals that were involved, uh, more on the deal side, private equity and venture capital-backed deals, more so than just banking in general. It was astonishingly easy to do deals. So uh, after the dust settled from Africa, it took about three months really for things, at least for me, to more or less normalize. And the amount of activity that we had was extraordinary. And the 1990s were easy is the best way that I can describe it from a professional standpoint. There was no deal that couldn't get done. Uh, if I agreed to take on the challenge of helping to structure and finance a deal, whether it was on the buy side, the sell side, a merger, whatever the case might be, uh, we could get it done. And it was really the best of times. Uh, you know, there were the success rate was extraordinary. We were doing dozens of deals a year. Uh, again, some for our account, most not because of the the scale of the capital involved. We had some capital, but not a not a ton. And we were invited to participate in the formation of private equity funds, uh, which we declined. Uh, ultimately, I did end up getting involved in the formation of some private equity funds later in the 1990s. But really, after that first year of starting Williams Capital and that trip to Africa, everything just took off. So talk to us through handling that growth. And actually, before we even go there, I want to back up even further. Did you have exposure to entrepreneurship or growing up or anything like that? Because we glossed over the fact that you were working for a firm for five years and decided to go do your own thing. So did you have any experience prior? <laughs> None. And uh, all the entrepreneurs that I met as an analyst working for the venture capital firm, I thought were nuts. <laughs> so, I, I, there was like no way, uh, no way. And I, my intention was never to become an entrepreneur. And when I started my little shop in 1990, I didn't consider myself an entrepreneur. I was just an analyst yeah. who thought he could help uh, the smart guys who had all the capital and uh, the the entrepreneurs, quote unquote, the crazy entrepreneurs who needed the capital to to grow. So uh, I had never had exposure. Like I said, I, I was I was born in Virginia, but I was one when we moved to Cleveland, Ohio, moved to Shrin Falls in 1963. 
And I'd been here ever since. I went to public schools. Uh, everybody, and we were fairly rural back then. So everybody was going off to the trades. Some kids were going off to college. Uh, I was fortunate enough to finish my high school education at a small uh, private school, uh, not far from here, just about six miles from where I live right now. That got me on the college track. I went to Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina, where I, I finished my uh, college degree, my 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 two degrees, one in philosophy and, and one in economics. And I was a numbers guy. My dad was a corporate man. He started off as a lawyer in Richmond, Virginia. He was hired in 1963 by Republic Steel to start the uh, in-house uh, law office for the company. And uh, after Republic Steel was sold, he went to work for Huntington Bank, and that's where he finished his career. Um, same, you know, my brothers were uh, just uh, two regular guys as well. Uh, same with my sister. So there was no entrepreneurial exposure. There was none of that. Uh, we always heard of entrepreneurs. Uh, Cleveland back in the 70s and the 80s was an absolute hotbed for venture capital and entrepreneurial activity. One of the very first private equity firms ever in the modern age was Morgan Thaler Ventures huge uh, private equity firm. And uh, they were state, started right here in 1972 by a guy named Dave Morgenthaler, who I did have a chance to meet as a young analyst in, in 1985. So I had never really been exposed to it until I be, had become an analyst uh, for Society Ventures, which was the name of the, the little firm that I started to work for. So now yeah. there's no, no desire, no exposure, no looking at the entrepreneur saying, God, I wish I could do what that guy is doing. <laughs> uh, mostly I saw the trail of wreckage left by most entrepreneurs at that point in time. Because an analyst, you know, we saw the failures as well as the successes. Yeah. So, so you're this accidental entrepreneur that dodges an assassination attempt and all of a sudden is in the roaring 90s and you're having all this this growth. So how how do you handle that? Take us take us through what that looked like for you. Um, uh, financially, it was extraordinary. I mean, it, like I said, there was there was almost nothing we couldn't do uh, mm -hmm. from that standpoint. Personally, it was challenging. Uh, my son, my only son, was born in 1992. My oldest daughter was born in 1994. Uh, my uh, my young daughter, Jenna, who's actually on the board of, uh, of Paquin, was born in 1997. So while I was going 100 miles an hour with my hair on fire, I was traveling seven days a week. And my wife, Catherine, was at home with three little kids. Uh, we did have some part-time help, which took some of the load off. But uh, the running joke, which turned out to be a nightmare, was that uh, as I flew over Cleveland from L.A. to New York, I would wave. And it was very, very difficult personally. Mm -hmm. And uh, I made a, a conscious decision toward the end of the 1990s. This has to stop. I, you know, I'm missing my kids growing up. I'm around maybe a day a week, uh, two days on a fluke. And there would be some days, two weeks go by, and I wouldn't get to see my wife or kids. So it literally was head down, pushing forward as hard and as fast as we could. 
And I made, like I said, a, a deliberate decision to slow down. Uh, by the way, you asked a question, how did we handle the, the um, uh, volume of deal flow? Uh, rather than hiring employees like I had done with uh, an associates, with Williams and Associates, everything got farmed out. Um, I knew so many people that as deals would come up and uh, many hands were needed, uh, I knew who I could turn to to help out with whatever uh, each individual uh, transaction required. So there was a lot of organization, like I said, a lot of travel, many, many uh, cities, millions of miles flown in the 1990s, and it became too much for um, uh, the personal side. So uh, like I said, by 1998, 1999, I started pulling back pretty dramatically on that. And um, uh, an interesting event happened when literally the roaring 90s came to a dead stop. Uh, I had invested heavily in uh, a small business uh, here in Cleveland. And uh, some people that I knew well had invested in it heavily as well. And it turns out that uh, yeah, the entrepreneur had stolen every penny, almost $15 million worth of capital had gone into the deal. And uh, besides focusing on home, that became a big time consumer trying to unravel that whole mess. Yeah. So I was hoping you would bring a little bit of that up because it would be easy for people to listen to this, go, wow, okay, well, he missed us an assassination attempt, but man, this guy was raking it in, must have been great. Um, yeah, so he, uh, his family was suffering a little bit, realized that, all right, I got to do some stuff, mm -hmm. but I want you to share what happened when that $15 million investment is blowing up because this ne'er-do-well is, um, pilfering talk about, cause that was a nightmare, um, in many ways and whatever you're willing to share. I think it would be beneficial for people to realize, hey, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, not everything is uh, roses mm -hmm. when you're um, in entrepreneurship. And yeah, when money's coming in, that's fantastic. But you personally suffered tremendously from it. And you're not one that goes and jumps in front of the spotlight and says, hey, let me tell you about me. You're you're just the opposite, but that's why I'm kind of pulling you to the, the extent that you're willing to share <laughs> um, to benefit somebody else. Well, um, uh, I took this one very personally. Um, I had known this individual for a couple of decades, this entrepreneur. And um, uh, so I got behind him in a big way and um, spoke highly of him to people that I know. And when he was raising a significant amount of capital to dramatically expand his business, I said, this is, this is good. And I, uh, about two years into the deal, realized that uh, the numbers just weren't adding up. So I confronted him on it. Uh, there were supposed to be product in bonded warehouses in Europe and here in the United States. And I kept being given paperwork that I knew was not correct. So I I went to the bonded warehouses, found out there was nothing there. 
in Europe or here in the United States. And the lawyers were involved and the lawsuit started. And he quite shockingly ended up dying during the process before anything had been resolved, before uh, the trail could be fully uncovered to where all the money went, what happened to all the product that was supposed to have been bought, and we were all left basically with nothing, uh, including his banker. Um, I'm not sure the, the the bank that he had borrowed money from had ever gotten any money back either. Uh, but because uh, I knew all the people that invested money with me in this deal, I made sure that that um, uh, nobody lost any capital on this transaction. Uh, because really, they had not invested in this entrepreneur. They invested based on my recommendation. Yeah. And that cost you personally, tremendously. I wrote and, the check for everybody to get out whole. Yeah. And no, you yeah. wouldn't have had to do it by the letter of the law. No. At all. You were mm. protected, but you you chose to jump on the grenade. So if you were working at Bank of America and Hugh McCall knew about it, he would have given you probably a pile of Waterford crystal hand grenades because that's exactly what you did as you jumped on the grenade. Which is another reason why you're on this podcast, because the integrity, you know, not everything is what it appears on the outside. Somebody sees Bob running with his Huskies through Chagrin Falls. Not everybody knows that story, even in Chagrin Falls. <laughs> not everybody knows that story. So anyway, I just thought that was really important. So as you suffered tremendously financially through that experience, Talk about what that did for you and your mindset, but then how did you claw back out? Well, I can tell you it pretty much sucked the life out of me. Um, sucked my motivation. Uh, made it hard to get up and go out. Um, I stopped a meeting with people that uh, unless they demanded to get together, I just had, uh, I'd lost all taste in deal business together. Um, I just didn't want anything to do with it anymore. I was really in a funk. I was in a very, very dark place for a couple of years. And uh, I just, I, I couldn't shake it. And I found it very, very difficult to get my engine started again. So this is, you know, the whole mess started and the deal started in 1999, fell apart by 2001. And I was in, you know, this dark place for a couple of years, 2002, 2003. And then, uh, interestingly enough, another deal guy called me and said, hey, Bob, I need your help with something. And I said, no, I'm not going to help. And he said, yeah, you are. Uh, and his name was Tom Ralston. And Tom was, how much older was Tom than me? 30 years older than me, I think, at the time. And uh, he owned a, a company here in town called Ralston Company. He was an investment banking firm, a uh, full-service investment banking firm. But he had a couple of small uh, venture capital funds that he had, had put together himself. He was the primary money in these funds, but he had a, a few of his friends and clients that were involved. And uh, he had had trouble with some previous analysts. And he said, look, I just need somebody to come in and give me a hand with this. He had passed on 
uh, the main company to his children and was just focusing at the end of his career on these two small private equity funds. And he's the one who kind of dragged me out of the dark and back into the light again. And uh, he and I started working together every day. Uh, this was like, like I said, 2003 timeframe. And by 2005, 2006, Tom and I were doing a lot of deals. I was starting to do some deals myself again by this point in time on the side, which Tom knew about. Um, he had made the decision to start um, unwinding uh, Ralston Ventures, which was um, the two venture capital funds that he had left. And so I helped him unwind uh, those two funds. And by 2000, spring of 2007, I bumped into somebody who asked me if I knew what InvestLink was. I said, no, I have no idea what InvestLink is. And said, how can you not? It's based in Scrim Falls, Ohio. And uh, I was introduced to the CEO and I met Gary Fry in July of 2007. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and just when you thought that uh, the nightmare had ended... <laughs> oh no. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, and we won't go into all that detail, but let's just put it this way. A couple years later in 2009, uh $30 million worth of us are wiped out. Yeah. When it went down. So uh it was spread a a across more people, but man, and that was just the holding company. It was it was a nightmare. And Bob and I were the last two guys standing when the board said we got to shut down 11 offices and 90 people gone. And so Bob and I were the last two. He was the financial brains and I was the connecting rod to still a lot of these um, investors and we were investors as well. Um, but, you know, you learn a lot when somebody is going through really good times and really bad times. And, and I've only known Bob in the really bad times. Now, Paquin, fortunately, is good times again, um, and he's done a really good job. But um, one thing that I would love to t just tell anybody listening to this, even if somebody can't do a thing to help you, it's completely outside of their power and scope and ability to do one thing to help you, just being there as a sounding board and a, as a friend could save your life. And I'm not kidding you. That is not an exaggeration, but that's exactly what Bob Williams did for me. He couldn't do a thing, but he sat on my porch many times <laughs> when I didn't want to keep living. And, um, and again, he couldn't do anything, but I'm grateful. Well, one thing is for sure is, is Gary, as you just said, you know, when you don't have a choice uh, and are faced with these kind of things, the one thing you do get to choose is who you do it with. So don't do it alone, whatever it is. You know, I've met so many entrepreneurs, um, sadly, some who actually did take their lives. Uh, it's a company called Zerco Systems that was started in the 1990s. It was an encryption-based um, uh, tech startup, brilliant idea. Um, the right technology, but it just, it could never quite get traction. The founder of that company had literally after a decade of trying to get this company up and running, took his own life in his garage. 
because he was trying to figure out how to do this alone. He was a loner. Uh, that was his, his temperament. Uh, many people tried to help him. He shut everybody out. And, uh, you know, when things get difficult or impossible, as they sometimes can feel, just don't do it alone. I mean, that's, you know, to your point, Gary, and like in the early 2000s, when Tom called me, he said, no, nah, you're going to help me. Uh, come, come give us, come give us a hand. You just can't go through these things alone. And that's the other thing. You know, the one thing I'll say about you, Gary, is you get knocked down. You always get back up again. Always get back up. You're always moving. You're always getting back up. And uh, whatever the challenge is, you know, you don't have to be the best at it, but as long as you keep getting back up, you're going to succeed. Well, that's true. But there, as you experience, there are times when you don't want to get back up. And that's the danger zone when you just don't want to get back up. And fortunately, we need somebody like a Tom Ralston yeah. or Bob Williams to drag you up and say, no, you're going to get up. And, um, and away you go. So thank you for sharing and being willing to share that. Cause you know, you're, um, there's a lot of facets to you. You're a lot more private person than I am. And so we have to kind of pull some of this stuff out of you <laughs> to hopefully benefit somebody else. Mm -hmm. But I also want, so I want to move to Paquin because I think it's a very interesting story. So when I first met you in 07, you were the only outside board member for Paquin. Yeah. It was an ESOP, et cetera. Talk to us about going through that process of being able to make a bid to buy that company, what you were able to do, because it's a really amazing story um, in the last two and a half years and what where you're going mm -hmm. and with the team you have assembled, which is really cool. So I'd, I'd like you to take the listeners through that story. Well, you know, a, a Paquin is a case study in and of itself. It's really quite an extraordinary company for a couple of reasons. One, their products were always engineered for a specific customer or a specific environment, hence the explosion proof certifications they've got. Uh, second, uh, they were always family oriented, if not 100% family owned, um, uh, shared ownership by a few people, and then ultimately becoming an ESOP. The original founder of the company um, uh, was advised and advised well that he could sell his stock to uh, a newly formed ESOP and do it tax deferred. He did that and uh, he didn't sell 100% of his stock. He's just sold some of it. Some of his stock he did sell to a couple of his senior employees. And one of the recommendations is that when an ESOP is formed, because the employees who are beneficiaries of that ESOP do not have a say in the day-to-day -day operations of the company. So the recommendation is not only to uh, protect them, but to protect um, other ownership or management is to have a board with at least one independent director. And the attorney for Paquin, whom I'd known since the 1980s, uh, was the attorney from the very beginning. You know, I think he 
This was one of his first clients back in the late 1960s, early 1970s, knew that uh, they had to have an independent director. The director they did have had retired, and he'd approached me to see if I would be willing to um, uh, take that uh, director's seat. And I said, no, I, uh, I have no interest in being on the board of this small company representing the interests of an ESOP. And I knew a lot about ESOPs. I'd done a number of deals in the 1990s and uh, the early 2000s, ESOPs, and they are complicated. I said, no, I don't want to do this. So Mark Swery, God bless him, he's a great friend of this very day. Uh, he started Western Reserve Trust, and I'll never know why he started another company, but he didn't. Anyway, uh, entrepreneur, right? Couldn't help himself. But anyway, I accepted uh, the position as a director in 2000, July 2007 or June 2007. Uh, I had met with the company the first couple of quarters of 2007 and uh, finally agreed to go on. And what's interesting about this is between 2007 and 2012, it became 100% ESOP owned. So as the, the two other uh, minority owners retired, they sold their stock to the ESOP as well. So now we've got 100% ESOP owned company. And because the company was less than 50 employees, one of the things that I had suggested to management at the time was this is a perfect opportunity for you guys to buy all the stock from the ESOP, own this company yourselves. It probably is not gonna generate the results to the beneficiaries of the ESOP, the size that it is. So buy it out. It was a reasonable price. This was in uh, 2012. Uh, the deal for many, many reasons did not happen. Uh, the then president of the company ended up retiring after that. And uh, the three managers that remained, the new president, vice president of sales and the CFO had a second opportunity in 2015 to uh, buy the stock from the ESOP um, for many good reasons, one of which was valuation. They couldn't get their act together and they missed their opportunity again. Uh, come 2019, uh, the company was starting to struggle a little bit. And I raised this issue, you know, that the time could come for you guys to have one last opportunity to buy all the equity of the company from the ESOP. If it comes, don't miss it. Well, uh, 2019 came and went. Uh, 2020 came and the company was having some issues. There was stress in management. And by the end of 2020, uh, uh, there was no way the management was going to be able to uh, get their act together to buy the company. In fact, uh, things had deteriorated so badly in the management team that uh, the president of the company ended up taking a buyout and went his separate way. And I put in my proposal to buy 100% of the equity of the company to the ESOP trustee. Uh, my offer was accepted. And by um, March 31st, 2021, the company was mine. So since then, so now you're 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 completely in an entrepreneurial situation mm -hmm. where you you can't outsource all these employees like you did with Williams Capital. You actually have a whole bunch of employees, and you have more 
<laughs> now, um, talk to us about a little bit about that part of the ride for you. I learned a lot in the 1990s. You want the the, the smartest, most talented, seasoned people out front on whatever the situation might be. And it's a formula that I turned to time and time again in the in the deals that I was involved in, the companies I was involved in. And uh, I took a chapter uh, from my experience back then and really wanted to focus on the talent at Pakeland. Uh, I can tell you right now, there's no way um, that I would have been comfortable uh, acquiring 100% of the equity at Pakeland. Uh, if not for two key people. And that was the vice president of sales and the CFO. And a condition that I had was that I'm going to do this deal, but you guys have to stay because you guys have all the institutional knowledge. You have the experience, you know, all the employees, you know, the customers, the vendors on and on and on said, you guys have to stay. And they both agreed. Well, the deal closed in, by the way, where's my doc? Say hi, Amy. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> my shadow. She's everywhere. Um, <laughs> so we closed on March 31st, 2001. And on May 15th, not even two months later, 45 days later, a CFO abruptly resigned and said, I need to go do something different. And uh, Mike, the, the now president of Pakeman and I are like, what are we going to do? So uh, uh, that was a Monday morning. Uh, by Monday afternoon, I was on the phone with Gary Fry. And I said, Gary, uh, who is a board member at this point, God bless you for not saying no to my invitation to join the board of our little company. Uh, I said, our CFO just resigned. And I said, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do at this point. Um, and I was preparing to roll up my sleeves and take on all the duties of CFO myself until uh, an appropriate experienced seasoned professional could be hired. Gary's laughing on the other end of the phone. And I said, Gary, this isn't, this is no laughing matter. I mean, what's so funny? He said, no, you don't understand. Somebody you and I know well from years ago uh, just quit his job in Charlotte and moved back to Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, uh, that afternoon, I was on the phone with Phil, our, our now CFO, and I said, Phil, would you be interested in meeting me to hear what I have uh, in mind? And so that following Saturday, we met for coffee, and by noon on that Saturday, he was hired. So now we've got the, the team of Mike and Phil, the president, and uh, the CFO, and they are far more talented than the size of our company gives them credit for. It's extraordinary. I'm very, very blessed to have these guys working with me. All right. So, Ben, you have been so gracious uh, because, you know, it's kind of like, oh, hey, we've got two fraternity brothers that haven't seen each other for a long time. And then you're just kind of hanging out there. So you, you've been very gracious. But the one thing that I will say is that, again, Bob won't toot his own horn, so I have to. There there was very low morale there. Um, people had, you know, it was kind of coming in. They hadn't invested in the company as far as just lighting and, and making it nice, you know. Um, and they had a lot of very loyal people 
but quite frankly, and not to be disparaging it because it's not meant to be that way. They just weren't, they were kind of neglected. They were taken for granted. I'll just put it that way. I think from an an observer perspective, but leadership always sets the tone. Management always sets the tone. And, you know, Bob has been through some crushing experiences. And so he's got this humility and he puts people first, even though he's a numbers guy, He's kind of the antithesis of what you find in a lot of private equity firms that have really bright numbers guys running them, but they have not necessarily all been crushed (laughs) to the severity that Bob has. And so when I see the kind of exponential growth that they are having and continuing to grow purposefully, it's because he's surrounded himself with the right people and they are very intentional about investing in their people and also just the facilities of, you know, what's it like? What's the experience like when you come to work and treating people with dignity and respect? So that'd be another thing that I would hope anybody listening to that is like, don't lose sight of that because it really matters and it can have tremendous financial impact. But if you do it for the right reasons, like that will that will usually happen. But even if it didn't happen, it's still the right thing to do. So, so Bob, I want to I want to learn a little bit more about what Gary was just talking about. So you come in, and this company has low morale. There's not a lot of excitement in there. You've got the CFO that is one foot out the door anyway, and, and leaves a month and a half later. How do you turn that culture around? Because turning around sales and things like that is one thing, but culture is so qualitative versus quantitative. So how do you turn around the culture in that company? Well, uh, that's actually a really good uh, question because it is quality uh, over quantity. The first thing, however, uh, that is quantity related, uh, there are two different tiers of employees. Uh, there were employees that worked for the manufacturing subsidiary and there were employees that worked for the sales and distribution company, which is Paquin. By the way, Paquin is made up of four different corporate entities now. Uh, there is the Paquin company. It has two wholly owned subsidiaries, Global Intex and Excel Manufacturing, both manufacturing companies. And now our, our most recent acquisition, uh, Paquin Sensors, which is down in South Carolina. Uh, but the employees at uh, Global Intex and Excel uh, did not uh, were not offered nor received any benefits, had no access to 401k, no health care, nothing. Uh, they were on an entirely different pay scale um, as hourly employees. There was only one exempt employee at the time. So the first thing that I did is um, I eliminated the two-tier uh, pay structure and benefit structure that the company had. So everybody at Global and Excel received the exact same benefits that uh, uh, the employees at Paquin would have. The uh, uh, pay scales were all raised to industry level pay scales uh, for the hourly employees and uh, for the exempt employees, the, the same is true there as well. So now they had access to 401k, they had access to healthcare, um, uh, dental and vision were ultimately added. And uh, suddenly they 
you know, we're being paid what I would be consider a fair wage. The second thing is if somebody's going to spend the bulk of their waking hours uh, at our company working for us that have to produce the highest quality product, uh, the certified product that we manufacture and sell, uh, it should be a pretty good place to go to, not a dark, dingy, unheated, uncooled manufacturing space. So we uh, repaired and turned on the HVA system. We replaced all the lighting. We renovated the bathrooms. We renovated the break room uh, to make sure food and coffee are available whenever they need it on their breaks. So they're not going out to their cars or wherever they uh, were going for their breaks at the time. We did something as simple as have uh, a truck come up that uh, would provide them all with safety shoes, uh, steel-toed shoes for the manufacturing area that the company paid for. They did not have to pay for themselves. So it was important for me that if they're going to be there a minimum of 40 hours a week, uh, sometimes more when we're in an overtime situation, that they'd be really comfortable and enjoy coming there for work every day. So that was the, the biggest thing of all. Um, uh, the last thing is simple acknowledgement. Um, I'm not there every day. Um, I've been told that my presence can sometimes be disruptive to um, uh, everyday life at Paquin, whether here in Northeast Ohio or uh, in South Carolina. Uh, but when I do go, I know the names of these employees. I'll go back and say hello, ask them how they're doing, if there's anything they need. And I mean that if there's something they need, we'll get it for them. Uh, and make sure that um, uh, any issues that come up are dealt with. Uh, sometimes issues will come up that uh, neither Mike nor Phil as the president or CFO are entirely comfortable making the decision on themselves. We'll do what's necessary to make sure that it's done right. And this includes uh, disruptive employees too. If there's one disruptive employee that's making everybody else miserable, we'll find a way to address that also. So the... The other thing, and you're right, Gary, this was you two being long lost brothers coming back together in a conversation. So I, I have like 15 questions that I also could have asked along the way. But one that kept popping up for me was all of the different things you have going on. And then you have that realization at the end of the 90s of reprioritization, reprior right? You're missing time with your family and things like that. So what are some of the habits that you've implemented in your life? to ensure that your time and focus are spent where you want them spent? You know, it, it, that's an excellent question. Um, one of the things I deliberately did was make a, a functional, accessible office at home. So even while I'm working, I'm still around. So even when my kids were little, my office door was always open. Uh, but I am an early riser. I'm a guy that'll wake up at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning, typically, uh, the first thing I'll do is, you know, get my head in gear. I review all the emails overnight, whatever came in. I'll catch up on the news, focus on what needs to happen today, what needs to happen next week, and, and the month after that, and really kind of get my wheels turning. So by the time that I'm talking to whomever I'm, I need to be talking to, whether when I was doing deals or now in Paquin, uh, that uh, we get right at it. Uh, the other thing that uh, I've been a big believer of, like you said, this work-life balance, uh, because of, I'm fortunate in the business that I have, I can make time whenever necessary for my family. 
uh, for my kids' uh, swim meets. They were swimmers like me. Uh, and for uh, Catherine, for us to take time to actually take vacations, not pretend to take vacations, where I'll go and I'll take two weeks off. And uh, while granted, my computer and my phone are always on, sitting on a desk, uh, wherever the, the bedroom of the rental house is, uh, I'll leave it alone until I absolutely have to address it. So making time for family became an absolute priority for me. That normalization also helped me because when you got a bunch of kids running around having a blast, it's kind of hard to stay in a dark mood, <laughs> regardless of what's going on at work. Uh, and the, uh, you know, building a, a life that was compatible, both from a professional and a personal standpoint, became absolutely paramount. And in Gary's side, you know, having spent uh, a few very cold years in Chagrin Falls here with me, uh, he knows what it's like to have a work and family so close. In fact, when we were working together, one of the great joys of my afternoon with uh, our office right in Chagrin Falls is having my kids come down from the middle school and pay me a visit. While I'm sitting on my desk, I'd be on a conference call or whatever. They'd come bounding in. It's the best part of my day. Yeah. It's amazing. And it's it's advice, or not even advice, but almost the example that you're setting by what you figured out that a lot of listeners hopefully can can take into and apply to their own lives so they can live the most full life instead of just head down accomplishment after accomplishment. But now, I, I'll, I'll admit I am a workaholic, and that was really, really hard to learn. Uh, I can still do it today, and I have to be reminded once in a while to get my head uh, out of whatever uh, channel, business challenge we're working on at the moment. Uh, so getting up and getting fired up for work is not a problem. Right. Uh, making sure that I keep the balance is uh, is extremely important at this stage of my life. Yeah, yeah, uh, makes so much sense. Um, Gary, what else do you have for us in this? We've touched on so many great lessons and, and stories already. Well, we hit a lot of those really important ones that I I wanted to make sure that we did and that we kind of drug out of Bob. <laughs> so <laughs> again, thank you, Ben, for being so gracious to me because, you know, um, you, you are a really good counterbalance to me, uh, which is why I love doing this podcast with you. And you're, you, you ask the best questions. You really do. You're re re really insightful. Um, and so I don't know that I have any, additional ones because i think we hit a lot of the the ones that yeah. listeners are going to really be interested in and in hearing and being able to apply it's funny because we've had some investment bankers on here right we've had two two pairs and like a, another one will have probably already aired with johannes and brad batten johannes yeah. wick and brad batten um and I think in all of those cases is very interesting. And with Bob, just the fact that he didn't fancy himself to be an entrepreneur, he was kind of, you know, perplexed by these shiny object chasing entrepreneurs that he kept throwing money at and, and helping. Uh, and now he is one, which I, I think is interesting too. You know, people say are entrepreneurs made or born? I don't know the answer to that. You know, I really don't know the answer to that. Um, but I'm just glad that Bob is is in that 
space and and uh you know being in, intentional again i i just think that the most important thing that like a thread through all of our things has been management sets a tone as you go so does the rest of the company go and we're trying to highlight people that are trying to do it right uh versus just grab all you can can all you get and sit on the can you know it's like uh that that that's not really living as far as i'm concerned so bob is there anything that you feel like we didn't cover that you would like somebody whether they're an entrepreneur or not listening to this podcast that you would like them to hear or know uh, is this something that uh, I'm sure you've covered before in your other podcasts? <clears throat> no matter how bad something might seem from your point of view, most often it's not that bad. <clears throat> this is where having uh, a partner, a buddy, a spouse, whatever, help bring some clarity to that to get you out of that funk. I see it at uh, Pakeman. Uh, we've got some people that are so dedicated and so focused that they uh, almost get overwhelmed by the the challenge uh, that's before them uh, or the difficulty that's that's before them. And one of the things that uh, that we try to help them with is is no, um, take a step back, look to your left or your right, and ask somebody else what they think uh, in terms of what's going on. So. Whatever the situation is, uh, with obviously a few exceptions that you and I have, are all too familiar with, uh, are often as bad as they appear to be. Uh, the, the other thing is, particularly uh, for people who have challenging careers, uh, entrepreneurs that might have a challenging business, uh, learning how to get back up again and, and keep going after each knockdown uh, is really hard to do. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are a couple of times when I've been knocked down so hard, I didn't think I was going to get back up again. So you have to figure out how to get back up. And some of the most successful entrepreneurs I've ever known are those people that are best at getting back up again and charging ahead. So uh, it's really an amazing thing to, to witness as an outsider. I don't know that I've ever been knocked down quite as hard as some of these entrepreneurs that you and I know, Gary. Uh, but still, learning how to get back up, stay focused, and keep going is is a real talent. Well, Bob, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your story, sharing your lesson, sharing your advice. It's uh, it's greatly appreciated. This has been an unbelievable conversation. It's my pleasure. And uh, Gary, kudos for you for convincing me to do this. <laughs> yeah. If people just knew how hard it was to get him to be willing to do this, because he, again, he doesn't seek the spotlight. If anything, he just runs away from it. So thank you, Bob. We're all richer because of your stories. Anybody that knows you knows that they are richer because of you. Ben, always so fun being with you. Let's just keep doing this. All right. Let's just keep doing this for a long time. That's the plan. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> all, right. all right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thanks, guys. My pleasure.